The first theme today is passion. And uh, as I thought my way through these four themes, I assumed that the primary meaning for the word passion was passion for God or passion for Christ. Holy Spirit given passion for God in Christ. And so that's where I have directed my thoughts. And uh, the first thing I think I need to say is that we will not have a passion for God the way we should until we see and rejoice in God's passion for God. Or, say it another way, we won't have a passion for Christ the way we should until we see, understand, embrace, and rejoice in how committed Christ is to exalting Christ. Now I want to give you four or five reasons why that's true. Why your passion for Christ and your passion for God the Father will not be what it ought to be until you understand and embrace gladly how Christ-exalting Christ is and how God-centered God is. Here's reason number one. Until you see and savor how God-centered God is, you don't know Him as righteous, for example. You don't know him as righteous. What is God's righteousness? God's righteousness is his doing what's right all the time. Feeling what's right, thinking what's right, doing what's right. Well, what is right for God? Nobody writes right for God. God dictates what's right. What is right for God is always valuing supremely what is supremely valuable always exalting to the highest what is most worthy of exaltation, always treasuring what is the most valuable treasure. He never sets his affections on things that are lower value so that he inverts the universe. And what is supremely valuable? What is worthy of the highest esteem? Answer, God. Therefore, for God to be right, he must love God above all else. For God to be right, he must value God above all other values. For God to be right, he must treasure what is the most infinitely valuable treasure in the universe, namely God. So you won't even know him as righteous until you know him as God-centered. Here's a second reason. You won't know him as happy until you know him as God-centered. God's happiness, long before you ever existed, consisted supremely in the joy that he had in the fellowship of the Trinity. The Father beholding all the perfections of his glory echoed, reverberating back to him in the perfection of his Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
Why is he so well pleased in his son? Because his son is the exact representation of the Father. You can't know God is happy, eternally happy. And I'll tell you, if you lose the happiness of God, you've got nothing to go home to. A gloomy God, a sad God, a frustrated God, a miserable God is not interesting. I would not want to spend eternity with him, which is one of the reasons why some of you have a hard time connecting with your father in heaven because your father was gloomy. And he was frustrated. And he was angry all the time. And God means to be known as a father different from that. A happy God like a Vesuvius of joy long before you ever existed. And we'll see, I hope, before we're done this week, that one of the reasons you came into being is that you might be brought into the fellowship of this joy. That's reason number two. You can't know him as happy until you know him as God-centered. Here's reason number three. You can't know, let's put it this way, you can't experience passion for God for what it really is until you realize that your passion for God is God's gift in you of His passion for God. I think that is the supreme work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sheds abroad in your heart God's zeal for God. So that the very joy, passion, zeal, treasuring that we have in God is God's treasuring for God. Now you heard that in this little drama. You may have missed it, so I'll get to it eventually. Reason number four for why you can't have the passion for God you should until you know that God is God-centered. You can't know what it is to be loved until you know that God is God-centered. Now, this is the one we're going to linger on, and almost everything else I have to say this morning is about this point. Because this is the hardest to get across, especially to the generation or generations represented in this room. Not everyone in this room is an American, but most of you are. And Americans find what I'm about to say almost unintelligible because we have been raised, I say we, I'm the oldest baby boomer in this room. I'm almost the oldest baby boomer in the world because baby boomers were born in 1946 and I was born in January 11 of 1946. Anybody born between January 1 and January 11, 1946? See, I'm the oldest baby boomer in the room. And my generation doesn't understand this either. In fact, ever since the fall, humans have had a hard time with what I'm about to say. Real hard time. But our nation, for the last 30 or 40 years, has made it very hard to grasp what it means to be loved by God. 
So I'll give you a little test to see if you are more American or more biblical. All right? You don't have to raise your hand. Just in your heart, answer this question. Do you feel more loved by God when He makes much of you or do you feel more loved by God when He frees you from the need to be made much of so that you can enjoy making much of Him forever? That's a tough question. Because we have learned in America to define love as making much of somebody. We call it self-esteem. We rear children by means of the gospel of self-esteem. We educate children in our public schools and Christian schools by means of the doctrine of self-esteem. We motivate people in the church by means of the gospel of self-esteem because we think the only way anybody will feel loved is if you make much of them. And I, on this fourth point, am telling you, you can't know what it is to be loved until you know how God-centered God is. I think, and I am going to get to Scripture, by the way, to put underneath all this. I think that God's love to you is supremely manifested in doing whatever he has to do, and it cost him the life of his son, whatever he has to do to free you from the bondage of needing a good image in the mirror so that he becomes your absolutely ravishing, all-satisfying treasure. That's what it means to be loved by God. And I'll tell you, when you try to twist the gospel, especially the cross, into a support for self-esteem in order that people might feel loved, you destroy the possibility of what it is really to be loved by God. I'll give you a little illustration. Just Why do people go to the Grand Canyon or the Alps or the Rockies? Why do people go on vacation, stand on the edge of a massive expanse of depth and width that took who knows how long to cut out of the earth or that God cut out in a moment? Why do they go to these mountains that stretch up a mile into the sky? It isn't because it makes people feel big. Nobody goes to the Grand Canyon to increase their self-esteem. Nobody stands at the edge of the Alps so that they can have a mirror in front of them and feel really good about what they see there. That is not why people go. Well, if the gospel of self-esteem is the bottom line for how people can feel good and feel loved, why do people then go to these places where they must feel so small? And there's a reason. And it's written on every heart in this room. In fact, one of the great things about being a missionary is that it's written on every heart of the universe. You don't talk to anybody who doesn't have this written on their heart which is why there can be leaks in every culture. And what's written on your heart and their heart is this. They were made not to be made much of. They were made to make much of God and be satisfied making much of God forever and written in little bitty letters because it's been so squashed down with sin is a mountain might get me what I'm after. A valley might 
It feels so good to feel a big expanse stretching out in front of me. I feel drawn out of myself. I feel like I'm just being pulled out into something great and glorious. And they don't know what that's all about. We know what it's all about. They're made for God. The mountains, the valleys, little substitutes. In fact, movies are littler substitutes. I mean, why, why, why are these movies today? Everything's blowing up. Boom! Everything's blowing up and crashing and all this big, loud craziness in most movies. It's, it's all about the desperate cry of the human heart to experience magnitude, not mirrors. You weren't made to stand in front of a mirror and get your joy. I don't care what you see, good or bad. You know what the best gift in the world is? Know that the miracle would happen for you more often than it does. Self-forgetfulness. Have you ever tasted any sweet moments of joy? where you see something so glorious, so beautiful, so satisfying, you forget about your experiencing of it. You know, one of the great and dangerous things about worship is expressed by my associate. He said, one of the great dangers today, in fact, we sang a song about it. Did we sing that song this morning or last night about I'm coming back to the heart of worship? That was this morning. That song, I know the origin of that song in Britain, and that song expresses one worship leader's experience of the danger of worship. Namely, you can, in worship, love loving God more than you love God. You can love loving Him more than you love Him. That's what that's about. It's a gift to forget yourself and your experiences because the, the experiences are so authentically other-oriented, namely Christ-oriented, that you're not thinking about your experience of the glory. You're just there, connected, communing. That's the gift. We will only have it in partial measure in this world. And my point, this fourth reason for why we need to know the God-centeredness of God, is until you realize that God is so God-centered he aims to love you by making you God-centered, you'll never know what it is to be loved. If you constantly are turning biblical truth into supports for self-esteem, you won't ever get it. You'll have some measures of mental health. Oh, I do not deny you can help mentally sick people get well with self-esteem. Well in a very limited definition of well. Help them function, help them get along better in their family, Help them feel more productive and therefore work harder and on and on and on. The benefits of self-esteem can go. They won't take you very far with God. If you want to know what it is to be loved by God, you've got to forget thinking you're ever going to be worthy of it. You'll never be worthy of it. That it comes to you absolutely freely and the form that it takes is to help you forget yourself in the experience of the all-satisfying Savior. That's the meaning of love. Now, if you have a Bible, let's go to John. First, we'll go to John 11, and then we're going to go to that text that was being read during the drama, John 17. John 11. 
This is the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. I go here because a year, year or so ago I saw for the first time a very helpful connection in this text between love, which is what I'm ending on in my initial four arguments for why you need to be God-centered in your passion and why you need to know that God is God-centered in His passions. And I saw the connection between the glory of God and the love of God in these verses. So let's read John 11, 1 to 6, and I'll point out a thing or two here. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with her ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister, sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love. Now there, you've got to underline that word love. It's, it's going to be repeated because that's one of the themes. It's Christ's love for Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He who you love is sick. He's ill. And then Jesus did a very surprising thing. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness is not to lead to death. It is for the glory. Now underline that. Now we got two key words. We got love and we've got glory. And the question is, how are they related? You got God's glory and you got Jesus' love for people. How are they related? It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In other words, Lazarus getting sick is all about my glory. And I love him. I really love him. You start to feel the connection? Verse 5. Now Jesus loved. Here it is again. Don't miss it. It's, it's being emphasized. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So what he's about to do is not unloving. It's going to look unloving, really unloving. It's going to be felt as unloving. And many of your experiences have felt that way. If he loved me, why? I got pneumonia at this conference. Why did I leave behind such a broken ministry? Why am I feeling so discouraged? Why am I being tempted by lust? Why, why, why? If he really loves me. And that's what's, look at what Jesus does after saying he loved him, he loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus, so, that's what my version is, that's right, or therefore, if you don't have a so or a therefore, get a new version. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And, and let him die, so that he be dead four days. A long time, good and dead, good and dead, my friend. What in the world is that so? You see the so, the therefore? Versions that leave out these little connecting words drive me up the wall because I build whole theologies on connecting words. He loved them 
Therefore, he let him die. Therefore, he let him die. Therefore, he let him die. Why? Because it's all about glory. Love is about glory. Love is about glory. It's about the revelation of glory. It's not about making your life easy. It's not about keeping you alive. It's not about keeping your spouse alive. It's not about keeping your kids alive, missionaries. You know this, don't you? Missions is a hard place to raise kids and the best place to raise kids. The most dangerous place to raise kids is America. Wicked, pagan, stylish, fashion-driven, rich America is the dangerous place to wear kid, raise kids. So don't be afraid of taking your kids to the hard place. They might die. That doesn't mean you're not loved. This text has taught me that when Jesus loves us, he will do whatever it takes, whether it's his son's death or my brother's death, to show his glory to me so that I love his glory and not myself or my brother more than him. Now let's go to chapter 17. This is what was being read during the skit. Chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. Now, this is the text that just blows me away when I think of how Jesus means to love us. This is what is so hard for people to understand. We want to be made much of when we are loved. We think that's what love is. Now, I, I assume you will agree with me that John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, is a loving prayer. If you don't agree with that, you come to me afterwards and tell me why so that I can try to fold that into my thinking or at least help you to get it out of your thinking. <laughs> I hope we all agree, chapter 17, the high priestly final words of Jesus prayed for you, according to verse 20. I pray not only for these, but for those who will believe on me through their word. That's how all of you got saved. Through their word, you believe. So he's praying for you. Is that not incredible? Jesus prayed for us here in this conference. Now what did he pray out of love? Listen to these incredible first five verses of prayer for us. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Wait a minute. I thought you were going to pray for me. And you're all worked up about your glory, Jesus. Isn't it a strange way to pray for us, for him to say, Father, now I've got a few minutes here before I go to the cross. And I want to pray for my disciples and my people. Father, first thing on my agenda, make sure I get glory. 
and you get glory. Isn't that amazing? Verse 2. Since you have given him, the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, to which somebody might say, oh, there it is, there it is, Piper, come on. Now own up to that. There's the gift of eternal life. John 3.16, I haven't heard you quote John 3.16 yet, and that's what I'm at home with. None of this God-centered stuff. I want John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There it is. Say that. Well, I've said it. And now I say, all right, God loves you by giving you eternal life. I do not deny it. I glory in it. Tell me, what is this life? Read the next verse. Verse 3. This is eternal life, that they know you and the only true God the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now we're back to God-centeredness. Of course John 3.16 is gloriously true. Of course God means to rescue us from hell and put us into everlasting life. And who cares if heaven is everlastingly boring? I don't want to go there. I, I don't want to burn. That's true. But frankly... A boring heaven is not attractive to me. Therefore, to talk about eternal life to people doesn't necessarily communicate good news. The life they've known, they purely would not want it extended forever. Even if it's booze and sex and drugs, they know 10,000 years, this is going to get old. We've got to say more about the content of life. And Jesus does it. He says, it's knowing God. That's what wasn't in the box. It's knowing God. And Jesus, and Jesus is the one who's saying that, which is why I say Christ is very Christ-exalting. Christ is praying that you would have life meaning get to know me. Now, if I were to talk that way, you'd get up and walk out of the room, and you should. And I said, come on now, you've all come down here, so come know me, look at me. Think about me, think how wise I am, how smart I am, think how handsome I am, how strong I am. You would all roll your eyes, you would just, you'd just fade away. But when Jesus talks that way, This is why people stumble over this. C.S. Lewis could hardly stand it. I read an article in the Financial Times on the plane coming back from Wales, back whenever I was there last spring, um, by a man writing a book review saying the one thing he cannot abide in Christianity is how, it, how God constantly calls people to praise God. So it sounds like one big, sick megalomaniac to him. That's exactly what C.S. Lewis stumbled over. He said the Psalms sounded to him like an old woman trying to get compliments. 
Praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me, praise me. That's what you hear all over the Bible. Now, what I'm saying in this first message is that is the very essence of love. And that's why it's not evil. For me to say praise me would not be loving because I'd be distracting you from who can satisfy your soul. But when God says praise me, he's drawing you to the fountain. He's drawing you to the treasure. He's drawing you to the bread. He's got to be self-exalting if he loves you. Jesus has got to pray this way if he loves you. He's got to say, Father, I'm going to walk through this cross. And if I don't come out on the other side of this cross exalted as the king of the universe, what are my people going to enjoy? Now, verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. All of his work has been about glorifying the Father. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. So the first paragraph of his prayer of love for you is to secure from the Father his own exalted standing. Do you see why I said you can't really know him and you can't have a passion for him until you realize how utterly Christ-exalting Christ is? How utterly God-centered God is? Now, one more one more glimpse, and this was also read in the drama. Verse 24, here we see why the exaltation of Christ is loving. Verse 24 of John 17. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me before, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So now why is it loving for Christ to say, oh, Father, glorify me. Give me the glory that I've always had. I laid aside many of the outward forms of it as I became a servant in order to pay the price of all these unworthy people so that they could be loved by you forever, meaning so that they could see and enjoy me forever. And now, Father, I've done what I have to do, and you're about to do what you have to do to install me at your right hand, name above every name. Now I ask, get them there. Get them there so that they can see it. You see the opposite of this in self-esteem? Salvation is not a mirror. No matter how cleaned up, no matter how shapely, no matter how strong, no matter how handsome, no matter how worthy, salvation is not a mirror. It's Christ's glory. Now, here's the biggest well, that's, that's an overstatement. Here's a big obstacle that I feel, and if you think about it, I think you would feel too. All right, you're saying that my final destiny is to see him as the most glorious reality of the universe, be drawn into his fellowship where I can participate in his joy. I frankly don't have the capacity to enjoy God enough 
so that he would be honored by my joy or so that I would be satisfied by my joy. I don't have it. And that's true. So what's, what's got to happen? And that's what the last verses of this prayer are about. He knows that. He knows you don't have it. He wants the glory of his Father and the glory of his self to be exalted in your enjoyment of that glory forever, and he knows you don't have the capacity to enjoy him appropriately. So what's he going to do? What does he pray? Verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known here it is, that the love with which you have loved me, the Father has loved the Son, may be in them and I in them. What does that mean? What's he praying? What's he, what's he asking God to do? He's saying, Father, you have beheld me in the fellowship of the Trinity from all eternity and have seen your glorious perfections reflected back in the panorama of my glory. And we have enjoyed each other with infinite joy. Oh, imagine the energy that flows between the Father and the Son, which is the Holy Spirit personified. Imagine the energy that holds this magnificent universe in being, flowing between two beings created through that supremacy song from Colossians. It's all about, I just read Colossians last night, the, the supremacy of Christ in all things. Just imagine he holds in beings not only the planets, not only the solar system, but all the billions of galaxies that are out there. Imagine the power in Jesus Christ and in the Father, and they have been investing all of that power in loving each other forever. This is why all the universe is about joy. The universe came into being by the overflow of the power of joy. And now he asks, let this land on you with unspeakable wonder. He asks that the love that the Father has for the Son may be in you. I used to worry about heaven being boring when I was a child. I didn't like the images of heaven in the Bible. They seemed boring to me. I liked grass, not gold. I like to throw ball on grass. And now I've become much more person-oriented and less thing-oriented, though I do love the creation because the creation displays the glory of God, according to Psalm 19. But mainly, I want to be assured that when I see Jesus and in and through the visible God-man see the invisible God, I want to be sure that I have the wherewithal to increase in joy forever. And if he left me 
to my resources, my little heart, my little capacities to delight in him, I would be scared to death that I'd run out of energy in about two weeks. But now he's told me, you will not be left to yourself. I will get inside of you with my love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. And by the Holy Spirit, I will make sure that you have divine capacities to enjoy God's never-ending glory. Oh, I have images today of what it will be like to see and know Him. And let me just get close with one of those images. Go back to the mountains. I picture myself standing at a range of mountains as I die or as he comes. And there his glory stretches up into the clouds. And I don't know how high they go, but they're high because the cloud layer is high. And what I see, I stand in awe of and I say, I could take 10,000 years to roam those mountains. And I do take the next 10,000 years to roam those mountains. And every time I roam a new day, I see a new dimension of His glory because that's how inexhaustible infinite is. And one day, about 10,000 years out, I get up to the top of the cloud level. And I poke my head up into the cloud level and realize it's not a very thick cloud level. It's about six inches thick. And I get my head on the other side of it and whoosh, another range of mountains. It's right there in front of me. And this was just a little foothill that I've been roaming in for the first 10,000 years of eternity, enjoying all the kinds of new discoveries of God's wonder and God's glory. And I stick my head above it, and there goes another one. This might take 20 or 30 or 40 million years to range. And at the end of that, I go through the cloud cover, and there goes another one. And do you know what infinite means? They never stop. I mean... Eternity and infinity is a mind-blowing reality. And we have been told here now, you're going to be fit for it. Don't worry. <laughs> Don't worry. You will have the emotions. You know, it's interesting. I'll close with this. You hardly have to be told this because I just came from the Wycliffe Triennial Gathering. Wycliffe Bible Translators in Waxhaw, North Carolina. And it was a group about this size too. And they're entity leaders, as they call them, typically Wycliffe, entity leaders from all over the world, they came, and uh, they're a very attentive group also, but Wycliffe are a very unemotional group. <laughs> and it is so wonderful of the way God works to take introverts who don't want to be around people and send them to tribes to translate the Bible. So you can come along about a hundred years later and renew the churches that have died in the meantime. <laughs> because they have. Cameroon, I went to Cameroon to visit my brother-in-law Steve where he's translating the Bible for 15 years in a little village. And I thought, well, I was going to see frontline, primitive, pioneer missions. Church has been in Cameroon for 150 years. And it's dead. Not all of it, but a lot of it. It's dead. Wycliffe is a church renewal movement. But I, I'm getting, I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> the train of thought was emotion. Emotion. This group is not made up mainly of introverts, I gather. 
because all I heard on the video last night was relationships, 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 right? <laughs> We're in this because we like each other. I wonder, where's the world come in, you know? <laughs> I'm sure it does, and Sam will explain it. Well, that's a good thing. But even you, probably, even you, at times, in your less than satisfied moments, know that your own capacities for joy aren't enough for Jesus. He's just too big, too worthy, and eternity is too long, and therefore I just close with the promise. The love that the Father has for the Son will be in you, and He will be in you, so that your passion will be His passion for God, and it is inexhaustible. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, I long to have more of you in me so that I can know more of you, see more of you, enjoy more of you, submit to more of you, display more of you for the world. That's why these folks love each other. That the world may see that you are worthy. It's you where all that love flows from. And so, Lord, I pray for CRM, that there would be a massive awakening of God-centered passion for God that will spill over not only in love for each other, but in a sacrificing love for the world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.